Chapter Nineteen of Tom Ossington's Ghost by Richard Marsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen, The Woman and the Man. Yes, the woman was dead. Ballingall had gone, and the fortune was found. Put in that way, it was a curious sequence of events. Indeed, put in any way, there could be no doubt about the oddity of the part which the woman had played. Medical examination clearly showed that the death had come to her from natural causes. She must, the doctor said, have been within a hand's breadth of death for, at any rate, the last twelve months. He declared that every vital organ was hopelessly diseased. Asked if the immediate cause of death was shock, he replied that there was nothing whatever in the condition of the body which could be regarded as supporting such a theory. In his opinion, the woman had burned out like a candle, which, when it is all consumed, dies. Nothing, in his judgment, could have retarded the inevitable end. Just as there was nothing to suggest that it came one instant sooner than it might, in the natural course, have been expected. That was what the doctor said in public at the coroner's inquest. He listened to them when, in private, they told him of the strange story of the night's adventure, pronouncing at the conclusion an opinion which contained in it the essence of all wisdom, for it might be taken any way. The gist of it was this. Very probably, for some time before her death, the woman had been light-headed. When people are light-headed, they suffer from hallucinations. It was quite possible that, in her case, those hallucinations had taken the form, literally, of her injured husband. It was on record that hallucinations had taken form in similar cases. It was a perfectly feasible and reasonable theory which supposed that the woman— wandering a homeless outcast in the streets of london delirious premonitions of her approaching disillusions being borne in upon her in spite of her delirium would turn her dying footsteps towards her one-time home to which as her behaviour in forcing herself on madge plainly showed her thoughts had recently returned nor under the circumstances was there anything surprising in her delusion that her husband had led her there it was when asked to explain how it was that she had hit upon the hiding-place of her husband's fortune, hit upon it as it seemed altogether against her will, that the doctor became oracular. But even here he was not without his hints as to the direction in which an explanation might be found. He pointed out that our study of the science of mental psychology was still in its infancy. But even so far as it had gone— it seemed to suggest the possibility of what has come to be called telepathic communication between two minds, even when the whilom owner of one of the minds has passed beyond the confines of the grave. This sounded a trifle abstruse, but as the doctor professed his inability to put it any clearer, they had to take his statement as it stood and make out just as much of it as they were able. As for Ballingall's pretensions to have shared the woman's hallucination— if hallucination it was, the doctor pooh-poohed them altogether. The man was as mad as the woman, and madder, and an impudent rogue to boot. Where was he? Let him come forward and allow himself and his statements to be scientifically tested. Then it would be shown what reliance could be placed on anything which he might say. 
but where ballingall was was exactly the problem which they found insoluble he had vanished as completely as if he had never existed the presumption was that while they had been absorbed in watching Madge's effort to carry on the work of discovery from the point of which the woman had left it, he had sneaked unnoticed from the room and from the house. The curious feature was that they were unable to agree as to the exact moment at which he could have gone. Bruce Graham declared that he was in the room when he went to fetch the hammer and chisel, and that he was still there when he returned. Madge protested that he was in the room when she ran across to the recumbent figure on Ella's bed. If so, since Jack discovered his absence within less than a minute afterwards, it was during that scant sixty seconds that he made good his escape. Why he had gone at all was difficult to say. One might have thought that after what he had undergone during his search for the fortune, he would hardly have disappeared at the moment of its finding. He had suffered so much in looking that he had earned at least a share when at last it was brought to light. Such, certainly, was the strong feeling of its actual discoverer. He stood in need enough of money, that was sure. Why, then, at what from one point of view might be described at the very moment of his triumph, had he vanished? He alone could tell. They could only give wild guesses. Nothing has been seen or heard from him from that hour to this. They put advertisements for him in the papers without result. Then, as they felt that living the sort of life which he probably was living, that is, if he was living at all, it was within the range of probability that a newspaper would never come his way, and that he would never glance at it if he did, they distributed handbills broadcast through the slums of London, beseeching him to apply to a certain address, and offering a reward to any one who could give an account of his proceedings after the night on which he had taken himself away. To those handbills they did receive answers, in abundance. There were evidently plenty of people who were willing, nay anxious, to lay their hands on that reward, just as there seemed several Charles Ballingalls with whom they were acquainted. But no one of them was the Charles Ballingall. More than once they thought they had chanced on him at last. The stories told were such very specious ones, and they followed up the trail till it proved beyond all manner of doubt to be a false one. When the Charles Ballingall to whom it referred was unearthed, he proved in each and every case to be not in the least like theirs. And so the presumption is that the man is dead. He was probably, as the doctor suggested, more than half out of his mind on that eventful night. His sins had brought him suffering enough to have driven the average mortal mad. It is not unlikely that the strange things which then transpired, completing the work of destruction, robbed him of his few remaining senses, and that, at that last moment, when Madge Brodie announced her discovery of what he had sought with so much pain and with such ardor, the irony of fate which seemed to have pursued him pressing on him still, had driven him out into the night a raving lunatic, seeking anywhere and anyhow for escape from the burden of life which haunted him. God alone can tell where and how he found it. End of chapter 19